the location information can can provide valuable services. Obviously, from you know, from the from basic GPS locators, which allow people to find where they are on a map, to more complicated kinds of social networking applications, it's useful to know that information. But the issue here is disclosure and what it's being collected for. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could join us. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California, my co-host, Bob Ambrogi from a normally dreary, cold, dark, and damp Massachusetts can't be here today, so I'm flying solo on the West Coast today. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. We'd also like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio Web-Based Practice Management Software Program for Lawyers at GoClio.com, SunTrust offering private wealth management solutions for attorneys at SunTrust.com slash law, and Firm Manager from LexisNexis with business solutions at MyFirmManager.com slash LTN. Well, today's show is about the big debate over digital privacy, and it's making big headlines again. Recently, it was disclosed that Apple's hugely popular iPhones and iPads store users' GPS locations for a year or more in hidden files. And soon after, Google admitted that it was doing something very similar. Phones that run Google's Android software also store a user's location data. These revelations have raised some serious concerns about how much information smartphones record and share, with whom that information is shared, and why is it even collected. That's the heart of our discussion today on Lawyer to Lawyer. And joining me today is an accomplished trial and appellate attorney, Joshua A. Engel. Joshua is presently vice president and general counsel for the Lycurgis Group. He recently served as chief legal counsel for the Ohio Department of Public Safety, developing policies for two law enforcement agencies. He also supervised legal services for Ohio Homeland Security and provided advice on security and law enforcement issues to the governor and director of public safety. His law firm is Joshua A. Engel, LLC. Joshua contributes to Law Technology News and writes the popular Stocky Cat blog at stockycat.blogspot.com, which focuses non-exclusively on the intersection between criminal law and emerging technology. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Joshua. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And our next guest is Jeff Hermes. He's the Associate Director of Digital Media Law Project and a fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. In 14 years of private practice, Jeff has assisted a wide array of clients in First Amendment, media, intellectual property, and Internet law issues. He's represented an international media network and its subsidiaries, major metropolitan newspapers, local broadcasters on television and radio, Internet-based publishers, and social media networks. At the Digital Media Law Project, Jeff advocates for freedom of speech, online and supervises the Online Media Legal Network, a legal referral service for independent journalists and digital publishers. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Jeff. Thank you, Craig. Well, let's just kind of get the ball out here on how this uh, little game began. How did the public really become aware of these hidden files in iPhones and iPads and similar practices by Google? Did somebody stumble on it? How, How did we learn about this? 
Well, as I understand it, there were a pair of security researchers who had been looking into various kinds of files that are stored on the iPhone and iPad and discovered a a curious local file on these devices. Um, When they examined what that file was, it appeared to be a log of various kinds of location-related data. That was reported in the UK, and uh, the the story soon spread worldwide. And Joshua, what? How did uh, Google and Apple react to this revelation? Well, Apple first um, denied that they were tracking anybody. I think Steve Jobs said they've never tracked anybody and never will track anyone. Uh, they claimed that they were collecting this um, data only about local hotspots and cell tower information uh, to help them with either future uh, activities or future. Um, products they may offer or to help with their uh, current services. Um, so it's not actually precise location that they were gathering, um, but it was, it was fairly close on there. Uh, they've reacted uh, pretty swiftly uh, to public concerns about privacy issues and have promised to uh, make some changes in the way that they are doing this. Um, they've promised not to uh, store the data for a long period of time and to store it in an encrypted manner and perhaps most importantly to allow people to opt out of this and and to not store the data if they don't uh, have the tracking service on their phones uh, operating. And one other item that they've promised to try to implement is to no longer back up that cache of information. Uh, One of the issues, as I'm sure we'll talk about, relates to where that file goes and how it gets transferred and how it gets backed up when your iPhone or iPad connects to, say, your your home computer. And, you know, there's a concern that that file may copy itself to various locations. I should add, one of the things that's not clear about this is is how much of a secret this really was out there. Uh, It was reported that these researchers had had discovered it, and, and that's when it first became public knowledge. Uh, however, there's some reporting that law enforcement may have known about this file uh, for some time and, and were accessing it occasionally uh, when they did forensic reviews of, of people's computers. Do you find that these practices were explained or disclosed in the user agreements? Well, it's an interesting question when you when you think about whether or not these items had been adequately disclosed. I, I will I will suggest maybe Joshua might know more about the law enforcement side of uh, the use of this material. Um, but when you take a look at Apple's, uh, Apple's Q&A on location data that they published after this information broke, they, they have an interesting admission. Um, they said that users were confused about what information was being stored and how it was being used, and because they say partly because the creators of this new technology, including Apple, have not provided enough education about these issues to date. And that struck me as a very striking thing for Apple to admit for uh, for a number of reasons, you know, especially with the possibility and actually the existence of, of a pending lawsuit. Are you finding, you know, we're talking about Apple and Google here. I mean, there are a host of other phone makers out there, BlackBerry, Samsung, Nokia, Kyocera. Is this something that's common only to Google and, and Apple, or is this something that exists on all smartphones that are available in the, in, to the general public? I think we don't know the answer to that really clearly yet. Uh, we know Androids and, and iPhones are taking this information and storing it. Uh, but when you're talking about what the public expects that, that people will have, um, we do know that 
cell phone companies will record and maintain for, for a certain period of time location data on all cell phones uh, so that the government, through either a court order or a search warrant, um, is able to obtain location information on practically all cell phone users. And, and that information you cannot opt out of. That's information that is automatically generated by the cell phone companies and, uh, and kept by them. Yeah, and you know you're right to ask about other other manufacturers that they've been somewhat quiet. But as Joshua points out, that there is this issue that exists with respect to you know service providers, and they have actually come forward and you know sort of tried to get ahead of of this you know this this crisis from their perspective by coming out to the public and saying, you know, that they obtain user permission before using customers' locations to find information. Um, they've, they've talked, you know, they had talked to the Associated Press at one point and tried to, tried to stay on top of this issue. Uh, but, but, you know, obviously, Josh was absolutely right in terms of the fact that, you know, that there are things that they do record for law enforcement purposes. I, in, you know, I mean, I have a, an Apple iPhone, and I've kind of assumed that when I use the applications and they tell me, you know, this particular application wants to use your location in order to feed you information, I'll accept that. Um, is that the kind of thing that we're talking about here, or is it is that is the information much deeper in the uh, structure of the phone than than simply giving permission intermittently? Well, what is what is of, of concern here um, or or interest? is that not so much that the phone is in real time uh, tracking where you are or knows where you are. And so what you've described is a situation where the phone is able to say, I'm near a Starbucks and I want to give you some information about Starbucks, say. Um, In this case, what you're talking about is storing that information. So the phones are creating a file um, that is sitting on a computer that tells you where you've been over an extended period of time. Um, and that's very different than where you are at any particular moment, because when you have this large electronic file of, of where uh, people have been, anyone who could access that file, whether it's someone who, who means ill, like a, uh, a hacker or, or a jealous spouse or someone like that, or, or someone for a law enforcement purpose, can pull that information out and find patterns in your behavior that might reveal things about your, your proceedings, um, your your political views, your medical view history, things like that, that you couldn't get just by knowing where a person is at any particular moment in time. How's it going to get my medical history? Well, for example, if, if you find out that someone is at a particular moment in time on a, a certain street corner at, at Tuesday at 3 o'clock, not a very useful piece of information. You just know they happen to be there. But if you know that someone's there every Tuesday at 3 o'clock and you also know that on that street corner is a psychiatrist's office, you might start to infer that the person has a psychiatric problem that they're seeing treatment for. Uh, Things like that, when you have a large amount of data, you can can glean patterns of behavior. And off of those patterns of behavior, you can make inferences about uh, aspects of uh, of their lives. I could see this as potentially a very good thing. I mean, I could think that there would be some applications that some people could build that would be able to access that data, tell me where I've been over the course of the last month, make some recommendations to me that says, you know, hey, you go to the market like three times a month. Why don't you make it two times a month, buy some more groceries and not go as frequently and save on the gas and and otherwise help me become more efficient. Are there some good uses that could be garnered from this information? Oh, 
I, I think that's the primary justification that both Apple and Google have given for why they're interested in this information. Essentially, they're saying, look, our ability to know where you are and where you've been makes us better able to serve you and also makes people uh, also makes apps that we provide for your phone uh, you know better the issue is however that first of all there's a question as to whether apple was doing this completely separate from any functionality of the phone there was an issue in terms of this file on the iPhones continuing to be updated continuing to be created con- you know this information continuing to be gathered um independent of what the users had expected or it's through the various apps they've been using. You know, you asked a question earlier about the an, an app which is ask, you know, which is saying, "Look, can can I use your location information to provide you with a with a particular service or particular functionality?" This was going on separate from that. Uh, at least in the iPhone in the case of the iPhone. And so Yes, absolutely. Location information can can provide valuable services. Obviously, from you know, from the from basic GPS locators, which allow people to find where they are on a map, to more complicated kinds of social networking applications, it's useful to know that information. But the issue here is disclosure and what it's being collected for. Right. Well, and that's the big question I have about it. I mean, what's the big deal here? This is my phone. I've got my location data on it. Okay, so maybe it. it backs up to my computer when I back up my phone. But you know, what's the harm here? I mean, if it's my phone and I'm not doing anything wrong and it tracks me and it's not disclosed to anybody else other than through a subpoena or through a search warrant, is there any real harm to the individual who's got these phones that track their whereabouts? Well, that's an excellent question. And as, as Joshua was, was mentioning, there's this question about whether if, you know, some unauthorized access occurs to either your phone or your computer, your phone is stolen, your computer is hacked into, whether that private information can be gleaned from these files. Now, it is, of course, a, a, also a valid question. Well, how, you know, what's the real threat from that file being on your phone if it's stolen to somebody who gets access to all of your emails, which may be on your smartphone? Um, because, you know, theoretically, or at least hopefully, your emails will be more interesting than your GPS location. And so, you know, a lot more information can be could be gathered much more easily than trying to break down this location information. Uh, but the, the broader question uh, about the harm which is suffered here, it, 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 it's, it, it has to do more, I think, in many cases with, with again, people's expectations. They're, they're feeling like they're being watched. That you know, that their phone is recording them when they're, when they're not, you know, when they're not paying attention. You're absolutely right to focus on the fact that the information isn't necessarily going very far. One of the curious things about both of the lawsuits which have been filed, the recent federal lawsuit against Apple and the, and the other uh, lawsuit against Google, is that there are no common law privacy claims for disclosure of private facts in those cases. There are claims under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. There are claims for fraud and misrepresentation. There are claims for unfair and deceptive trade practices, but they don't state claims for invasion of privacy. And that's presumably because they haven't been able to figure out you know, a way to, to allege in good faith that the information is actually getting somewhere it's not supposed to be. And I think Jeff has really hit on an important point here, which is that the location information is maybe one of the least um, interesting things that the cell phone tracks and, and keeps keeps a hold of. Um, but why I think this resonated within the public and, and has caught so much attention is because it's indicative of how much information is stored on these devices. 
in that if someone is able to access one of these devices, whether they are a good person accessing it for a a significant law enforcement reason, or they're a bad person who's seeking to commit some kind of crime uh, with this information, by accessing one of these devices, you get a tremendous amount of information about a person. You're really opening up a person's almost entire life through not only this tracking information, but through their emails, through their pictures, through their text messages, through everything else that we that we keep on these phones, or possibly all the documents that, that they access through through various apps uh, on there. And so when you're when you're talking about this issue, it, it's hard not to get into the greater issue of how much privacy is actually um, given up by people using smartphones, and, and how much privacy about really important information are they putting at risk? You know, it, it's interesting. I saw one commentator um, in response to the Apple and Google issues recently is just come out and say, well, look, do you think your phones work by magic? Obviously, there's a tremendous amount of information which goes back and forth between them to allow them to do what they do. And that, you know, as soon as that leaves your phone, it's to a certain extent out of your control. And so, you know, is is this really, you know, such a surprise or is it just, you know, is it just or is the surprise really in finding out some of the details about what's going on as opposed to the fact that it's happening? Well, I mean, one of the things that surprised me surprises me more than anything else is that there is so many people that give up information on Foursquare, Twitter and Facebook and, and even now with Facebook places. People regularly check in wherever they are. They tell you where they are. Uh, there's so much disclosure of information. It's almost like, well, who cares? Uh, you know, so maybe this information's out there, but really, how does it harm me? Even if it is something that's private, um, because it appears to me, maybe I'm wrong on this, and maybe the three of us, because we're probably a little bit older, but my children don't really seem to care. The issue, I think, again, comes back to control of which information you share. There are, I mean, you raise the issue of the generational divide between users of these services. I mean, certainly you and I may be a little more circumspect about what information we put out on the Internet, but I think it's still fair to say that even your children probably have some things that they wouldn't put on the net. They do have things that they consider private, and part of what's going on now is trying to figure out ways to allow different people who have different conceptions of privacy to make that to draw the line between what is public and private in their own way, in a flexible way that allow you know that 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 suits them, as opposed to being governed by one privacy policy which is sitting on a website. In in a lot of ways, potentially this could be a very good thing. It would be give parents control over young children who have cell phones, or at least some knowledge of where they are, if the parent can access that information on their phone. I mean, I see that as one possible use. Is there any danger in parents monitoring where their children are? Is that something we need to be afraid of? Well, I mean, you can always imagine situations in which you might have a non-custodial parent tracking where a, a child is and have issues of parental abduction and things along those uh, those lines. But, I mean, by and large, you know, th- that could be a benefit. I mean, it, it's sort of like, it, well, the, you can always find ways to misuse a tool, but that doesn't mean that the tool doesn't have an affirmative benefit. The... I, I, I guess when you think about things like protecting children and talking about parents looking at things, you, you do keep coming back to that consent issue because there's an issue about whether or not children have, you know, should be should be in the position of making decisions 
on their own about w- what's private, what's public, what information goes to their parents, things like that. I mean, children have very limited abilities to enter into, you know, terms of service and terms of use and, you know, and, and operating agreements for, 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 for these kind of devices. So it always comes back to the parents. So the, you know, the parent-child relationship is sort of special here. Um, but yes, I mean, you're absolutely right. that there, there is a lot of good that could be done with these things. Yeah, I think what we'll find is that that users of this information um, will, will only be constrained by their own personal imagination as to how they're going to use that information. And, and good people are going to use this information for, for good reasons, and bad people are going to use it for, for, for bad purposes. What you're really getting at, though, is, is when a difference in degree becomes a difference in kind. You know, how much information um, are you allowing out there about yourself before you start to think, wait, you know, now people are learning much more about me than they can just from these little discrete pieces of information that float around out there. And when you start to hit that point, I think you start to see a perspective of people changing um, on this. And, you know, even on the younger generation, I, I think, who has an expectation that, that all their data and, and all their information is uh, is out there, uh, might express some concerns knowing that someone can go back and find where they were over the past year and, and plot it on a map. Uh, they, they may not want their, you know, you look at it from their perspective, they may not want their parents knowing where they were at any particular time. Well, that's certainly the case, at least it was with my parents. <laughs> well, <laughs> gentlemen, it, it's time for us to take a quick break. When we come back, we've got lots more about a possible class action lawsuit filed against each of these tech companies. Because of the issue, Lawyer to Lawyer returns in one minute right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software, and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the the excitement is they're now able to realize the the potential of IT without all of the headaches. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Thanks for tuning into our program today. We want to let you know about something extraordinary happening in the legal industry. Right now, hundreds of independent attorneys just like yourself are working to bring a very special product to market. 
These attorneys are part of a development program at LexisNexis, and they are working under NDA on a brand new application that will change the way you run your practice. This solution, LexisNexis Firm Manager, is a web-based, highly secure application operating in SAS 70 Type 2 attested data centers. If you are interested in test driving LexisNexis Firm Manager at no charge, or to learn more, visit www.myfirmmanager.com slash LTN. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. My co-host, Bob Ambrosia, is off today. We're discussing the location tracking practices of Apple, Google, and a number of other smartphone manufacturers with our guests. Two residents of Oakland County, uh, Michigan, are suing Google over its tracking practices. It's something that we're going to be talking about. We're joined by Joshua Engel, Vice President and General Counsel for the Lycurgus Group and author of the Stocky Cat blog, and Jeff Hermes, the Associate Director of the Digital Media Law Project and a fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. Um, we mentioned, I mentioned in this brief introduction that there are two residents in Oakland County, Michigan, suing Google over its tracking practices. Uh, either of you fill us in on this lawsuit? Sure. The, there are two parallel and actually very similar lawsuits proceeding right now, as you mentioned, a potential class action lawsuit against Google in Michigan and a potential lawsuit against Apple in Florida. Um, and actually, they are parallel to the extent that if you put the, put the complaints side by side and start following along, you see that, the, that one was very clearly cribbed from the other. I won't comment on which, you know, on which followed which, although certainly one was filed first. Um, the claims basically assert that or basically try to establish that there is a class of users of the iPhone and iPad devices in the Apple case and the Android device in the Google case who were unaware of the data collection issues which we were discussing earlier in the show and that this was this this was insufficiently disclosed to them prior to the time they purchased these devices and essentially they argue that because apple and google failed to disclose the specific ways in which they were going to be collecting data and failed to obtain specific consent to those collection practices these manufacturers of these phones violated various state and federal laws by by essentially lo- loading software onto the phones which would gather this information causing the phones through the use of this software to transmit the information to various locations um, the claims in the the claims in the cases are virtually identical there is a claim for a violation of the computer fraud and abuse act the federal act there are 
claims under state unfair and deceptive trade practices acts. There is an injunctive relief claims, at, you know, seeking to enjoin the manufacturers of these phones from continuing with these practices. And there are claims for fraudulent and negligent misrepresentation. A curious omission in both complaints is a claim for disclosure of private facts. Given that this discussion has focused quite substantially on privacy, it's, one would think that there would be an explicit privacy claim in these cases, but there isn't. It does seem kind of odd that there that that's not a concern. And, and you know, we had a guest on last week, Judge Alex Kaczynski, the Chief Judge of the Ninth Circuit, and a Court of Appeals out here in in uh, in California, and he is arguing that because of the internet, essentially the First Amendment is dead. It's got to the point that uh, he called it the Streisand effect, essentially, where Barbara Streisand had a house in Malibu that was remote and not really able to be seen anywhere than other than the ocean, and someone took a photograph of it, posted it on the internet, and it occupied a very small corner of the internet for a while until she sued over it, and then it just multiplied itself and became known uh, almost throughout the world. Is privacy suffering from the same thing? Is is the internet going to be the death of our privacy? Well, I don't know if the internet's going to be the death of, death of our privacy, but what is um, challenging a lot of courts? Um, the, the Ninth Circuit among them, is the, the question of how much data is out there and, and how does that uh, change the way we look at privacy. Uh, one, one good example of an issue that courts have struggled with is the idea of tracking by uh, GPS devices. Um, and the traditional view was that a person didn't have really an expectation of privacy uh, when they were out on the road. If you're driving your car out on the road, people can see you. Uh, they know how fast you're going. They know what direction you're going. And police for you know ages have followed people in cars. And so the idea is that, well, a GPS device does just that. Um, the problem starts to arise when you have a GPS device that does a little bit more than that. It gathers information in a very detailed manner of someone's activities over an extended period of time, something that you know, a, a large number of police officers would have a very difficult time doing. And I think with the Internet, you're seeing the exact same thing, where you're seeing um, activities and, and pieces of information, um, such as location data, that by itself doesn't appear to be that interesting about someone uh, that doesn't appear to tell you that much information and that people may expect is out there. But when you start to put all this information together, and the Internet allows you to put all the information about someone together very, very quickly, uh, then you start to uh, worry that, that, that privacy concerns um, are impacted by this, this aggregation of data and this, um, this willingness or ability to connect dots in people's lives. Well, it's uh, almost time for us to wrap up and get your final thoughts, but uh, I think the program would be remiss if I didn't use the words, uh, there are some uh, Orwellian overtones to this whole thing. I mean, I, uh, certainly something that's been predicted, and you know, here we are facing the very issues that George Orwell wrote about in his book, 1984. Uh, Jeff, let's start with you to get your final thoughts and your contact information and perhaps a little commentary on the George or Orwell aspect of this whole thing. Well, I don't know that I go so far as to say the situation is Orwellian, but I do think it's a very different world from the one in which I grew up, at least. And I think that there is a lot more responsibility placed on individuals to maintain their privacy 
affirmatively. Um, it, it's it's a lot easier and to give up information about yourself than it used to be. There are more places it can go, and there are no end of people who are asking for that information for one reason or another, some beneficial, some nefarious purposes. But eventually, it you know there is a level of personal responsibility which needs to be taken in in terms of you know looking into you know how you can limit the information you share, thinking about the consequences of sharing that information up front. This situation raises some interesting questions about what happens when you don't know, don't realize that this information is being shared. Um, but but again, you know. It is the responsibility of of every individual who's out there on the internet to, to at least think about those issues. Um, if you, you know, in terms of contact information, the best place probably to get in touch with me and my project is through our website. That's www.citmedialaw.org, where we have information about what my project at the Berkman Center at Harvard does, as well as providing legal resources for. Um, independent journalists and other people who have needs touching on media law. And Joshua, same for you. Final thoughts and and your contact information, please. Sure. My final concern is that as we push this issue into the courts, whether it's through class action lawsuits or through litigation about search warrants in, in criminal cases, we're pushing it into an institution that is not really set up to handle these types of issues. Um, not only for the traditional reasons we think that courts have problems handling these types of issues because they are slow and expensive and the records that are built in particular cases may not be the best records in dealing with a particular issue. Um, But also we've discovered that the doctrines that are being applied um, to to try to get the answers in these and the courts have to rely on are doctrines that were built on a different world. They're, They're doctrines that are built um, based on the world that existed long before cell phones even were, were thought of. Um, and in that sense, the, the courts are, are particularly ill-equipped to do that. Um, that's why I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of the hearings that have been uh, scheduled in the U.S. Senate on this particular issue, because I'm hoping that, that Congress and, and the legislature is, is a better mechanism for addressing uh, not only who is collecting this data, managing this data, and storing the data, um, but also uh, to consider what safeguards need to be imposed so that this data uh, doesn't get into the wrong hands. In terms of my contact information, uh, the best way to reach me is um, through our uh, website of of our company, and and that is at uh, lysurgisgroup.net, and that's spelled L-Y-C-U-R. G-U-S-G-R-O-U-P dot net. Great. Well, thank you, gentlemen, both for being on the show today and for sharing your thoughts. We've had uh, Joshua Engel, the Vice President General Counsel for the Lycurgus Group and author of the Stocky Cat blog, as well as Jeff Ermes, the Associate Director of the Digital Media Law Project and a fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. And that wraps up this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. For our listeners, remember you can get all of your CLD credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on the West Legal Ed Center link. You can also find all of our shows on the Legal Talk Network on iTunes. We will be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. 
its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.